So thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's an honour, and it's always good to be here in Durham. Uh, every time I come here, I feel there's so many uh, good work happening here, and uh, so it's a pleasure to be here. We already had a day, uh, some of us, a post-grad conference, and I was really impressed by the quality of the work that was presented and the way it was presented. So, um, and, uh, and also thank you for being so brave to be here at the end of the day and such nice weather out there. And uh, so I'm really grateful. Uh, thank you. What I'll do is um, uh, something in the field of fundamental theology, and I hope that is not too um, boring and formal and methodological at the end of the day, um, but I'll try to make it interesting. And in short, I'll try to um, um, show something very simple, actually, that fundamental theology, uh, always ha having been of, a, of an epistemological nature, should actually nowadays more of a political nature. And that's the very simple statement that I will uh, make today. Nothing more, uh, but I'll give you some arguments for it. And here it is. So when Pope Francis uh, visited the island of Lampedusa on July, July 8th in 2013, he started his homily by voicing two questions. Adam, where are you? And Cain, where is your brother? Now these are the two questions that God asked at the dawn of human history in the book of Genesis. One about being lost and hiding in God's own world, not being present to God and therefore not being accountable. And one about neglect and the lack of responsibility. And in his homily for the people of Lampedusa, the Pope added a third and quite similar question to these two. Has anyone wept? Today has anyone wept in our world? And then he asked for forgiveness for what he described as the globalization of indifference, our culture of comfort in which we have become insensitive to the suffering of others. Now these questions, ancient and new, about sin and forgiveness have proven to be powerful instruments, I think, of the church in the world of today. And some might think that this is due to the personality and the charism of Pope Francis. And this claim is not unfounded, since uh, considering the impact he has had on believers and non-believers alike. And no doubt his public performance strengthens the ruling conviction that individual authenticity makes belief believable and that the test area of credibility should be the public sphere. In this lecture, however, I will demonstrate that the appeal of the Pope's public lament is much more than a matter of a convincing style or a form of pastoral or merciful prudence. Credibility also presupposes a theology that can and should be critically explored if it does not want to be left to the dubious mercy of personal preference or public approval. I will claim that the Pope's questions and prayers in Lampedusa addressed to the world resonate with a theology that represents an ongoing development in the Catholic Church during the past century but which has not gained much attention in its own fundamental theology. 
And that development is probably best described as a refocusing, a refocusing on the political as a sign and instrument of becoming church in the world. And this, as I will explain, does not entail an ecclesiology with a double focus on church and on world, one that calls for a church that communicates its message to the public or speaks out for the transformation of social and political structures, probably that too, but instead I will show that the political theology of the church is a sacramental theology with the Eucharist at its heart, the celebration of God's forgiveness which is transforming the world and of which the church is becoming sign and instrument. Pope Francis' questions in Lampedusa are not only expressions of a call to act, but also of the call to allow oneself being confronted with human sinfulness. Is the body of Christ that has become present on the altar of the world broken again in the refugees, the poor, and the drowned? And who has the authority to heal it and represent God's power on earth. Besides moral or political questions, these are also questions, I think, for the field of fundamental theology. The credibility of the Christian faith is certainly challenged by current political situations, which lead to questions on the where and when of the loci theologici. And in what follows, I will argue that to be believable at this very moment in history, in the face of those who are persecuted on the move, the Church needs to reformulate the foundations and implications of the political power of its Eucharistic heart, and the theology behind the performance of Pope Francis is an example of how this can be done. And in the question why we did not weep, and in the tears that did follow, lies the start of this theological project that I will present to you today. Now, in the history of Christianity, the credible and the political have often gone hand in hand. Christian, apologet Christian apologetics has been political from the very beginning in a variety of ways. In his letters, Paul argues against an all-too-obedient dependence on the Mosaic law in favour of human interdependency and vulnerability. In Pauline theology, these form the cornerstones of a rather more universal politics that, as the philosopher Alain Badiou has recently shown, refuses to submit to the order of the world, but argues for a new one instead. Similarly, the writer of Luke and Acts presented the church as a messianic society of mutual charity, but instead of envisioning it as a universal ideal, it was developing as a community that sought good relationships with the secular powers. And the author of the Gospel of John makes his politi politico-apologetic intention quite explicit when he writes that he recorded the signs that Jesus worked so that one may believe that Jesus is Christ, in chapter 20. 
Like Paul, the writer of John also claims that Christ's redemptive power is universal, as it extends not only to the Jewish nation, but gathers together in unity the scattered children of God, including the sheep not of Israel's fold. So this political universalism of the New Testament has informed the history of apologetics. Justin Martyr, one of the apologists of the second century, was concerned with advocating civil toleration for Christians and urged the authorities to investigate more closely whether the Christian faith was indeed partisan, such that it would lead to civil disobedience, and argued that this not necessarily need to be the case. Augustine, by contrast, praised the disobedience of the Christian martyrs, whose blood, as he writes, watered the seeds of hope implanted in the world by Christ rising from the dead. So Augustine's own political theology emerged from his polemic with pagan religion and contends that the kingdom of God is a present reality, an actual polity, even though the visible church, according to him, is, as he famously mentioned, called it, a corpus permixtum, a community of saints and sinners. Being a believer in Christ not only had the political consequence of persecution, it was also the adherence to the event of the resurrection that was itself regarded as inherently political and as such also became a measure of the world that is embodied by its faithful followers and especially in Augustinian theology by the martyrs. It is not very different in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. He reflects in his Summa Contra Gentiles after dealing with natural reason in the first three books of the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Sacraments and the Resurrection in Book 4, in which he appeals to the authority of Revelation that he sees at work in the poverty and persecution of believers in the past. This is a very historical argument that he uses. Thomas assumes that although certain aspects of the content of faith are not demonstrable through natural reason, but are made known through divine revelation, these have also become manifest in the history of the church and especially in the lives of the faithful. And he writes, and I quote, and for me this was quite a discovery, the wonderful conversion of the world to the Christian faith is the clearest witness of the signs given in the past so that they should be further repeated since they appear most clearly in their effect. For it would be truly more wonderful than all signs if the world had been led by simple and humble man to believe such lofty truths, to accomplish such difficult actions and to have such high hopes. End of quote. So according to Thomas, from whom one would have expected a metaphysical and logical rigor of a different kind, with which he would draw a sharper distinction, but that's at least what I expected, a sharper distinction between the natural and revelation, certain moments in the political history of the church function, according to him, as a sign and as a foundation 
of the credibility of faith. Now, with the emergence of the field of fundamental theology from the 17th century onwards, the history of this close connection of apologetics and politics seemed to be put on hold. A concentration on the preambula fidei, the preconditions of the judgment of credibility, was accompanied by a rationalist approach, which was directed against revelation as a supernatural foundation of faith. Epistemology, at the time, was seen as first philosophy and expected to provide the philosophical certitudes for the content of theology. And this way, the key motivation of apologetics seemed to have definitively shifted from politics to knowledge. From its establishment as a separate discipline within the theological curriculum in the 19th century, fundamental theology had the task to secure the rational and scientific character of theology as a whole, with philosophy as its main instrument, the common language of science, regarded as most autonomous and therefore increasingly more authoritative. So for a long time, this modern and epistemological type of Catholic fundamental theology was divided into the three so-called demonstrations, the demonstratio religiosa of the existence of God and the rationality of religion, demonstratio christiana of Christ being the unique revelation of God, and the demonstratio catholica of the Catholic Church as the true form of the Christian religion. Now, despite the prevailing rejection of neo-Thomism in the 20th century, this division into three separate demonstrations or treatises is still being employed, especially in German fundamental theology, although one could acknowledge that religious studies, for example, and philosophy of religion have taken over some of the tasks of the demonstratio religiosa, and the other two demonstrations are quite often, and perhaps rightly so, integrated in dogmatic theology, in particular Christology and fundamental ecclesiology. Now, nowadays, in an attempt to do justice to secularism, sorry, to secularization and pluralism, fundamental theologians might want to consider reorganizing the field, thereby emphasizing its communicative and dialogical nature, and I have done this in the past myself. Consequently, fundamental theology should nowadays perhaps be divided into three conversations with distinct dialogue partners, which in practice appear not always as distinct once the conversation has started. And these conversations could then be a conversation with believers in the church, on the dialectic between revelation and faith, and on the authority of scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, a conversation with philosophers and scientists on language, truth, and rationality, and on the criteria and methods of theology, and thirdly, a conversation with other or non-believers on the conditions and principles of ecumenical dialogue, interreligious dialogue, and the debates with atheists, for example. Now, these proposed conversations should then not be isolated from one another, and the results of one particular conversation will undoubtedly have ramifications for another. But this new proposal, I think, or these new proposals, they prolong the epistemological nature of fundamental theology. Now, in our time in which religious indifference 
religious transformation and religious fundamentalism dominate the agendas of both theology and religious studies, one would expect that the field of fundamental theology, being the theological subdiscipline in which foundations and positions of faith are accounted for, is thriving. The opposite, however, seems to be the case. Even though fundamental theology belongs to the first cycle of the Catholic curriculum, the term is conspicuously absent from recent literature, with the work of Jerry O'Collins probably as notable exception. A possible explanation is that the field has education as its main goal, since its task is to give a rational account of faith and it fits the purpose of teaching rather well. But as a teaching discipline, it has always remained quite Catholic and European and did not reverberate with a more practically and contextually oriented Anglo-American audience. But this at least is what we think from the German perspective. Another explanation might lie in the fact that philosophy has made its theological turn and performs part of the task of fundamental theology refreshingly well even though not many philosophers would be keen to admit that they seek to give an account of faith for God's sake. Furthermore, fundamental theologians might not have recovered from the Bartian and postmodern critiques of foundationalism, which questioned the field's key assumptions in the 1980s and 1990s. And there is no doubt some truth in all of these different explanations. But I expect it's rather fundamental theology's naturalism, its ultimate foundation in natural theology, or its transcendental Kantian metaformalism, which is my word, not its formalism, all academic disciplines need to be formal to a certain extent, um, that has brought it to the margins of the current theological enterprise. And this has also led to its isolation from dogmatic, moral, and practical theology. It's stubborn and self-reiterating, self-defining reiterating of the sharp distinctions between philosophy and theology, between self-understanding and the communication with others, and between reason and revelation. Distinctions that are formally not necessarily incorrect or unhelpful, although the circumstances in which they have emerged have certainly changed. Now, currently, colleagues of several faculties uh, of theology and religious studies have started, at least in, in my area where I work, and I'm, I'm quite curious whether the same is uh, the case here in the UK, they've started research programs with the word lived, as in lived theology, or sometimes even in lived practices, prominently in, prominently in the title, which is perhaps a signal that scholars like myself who have employed philosophical and doctrinal methods have failed to communicate the practical relevance of their approach. But there might also be a more fundamental issue at stake here. In a recent report on the future of religious studies and theology of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences, the committee members recommended to promote the study of new forms of spirituality, new religious institutions, the material aspects of religion, and the socio-cultural implications of religion. Now to some, it could be a worrying fact that the word theology 
does not feature in this list of recommendations. The study of contemporary religion, however, of which mainly the material and social-cultural aspects of its new forms will be explored in the future, this is in the Netherlands, as the writers of this report seem to suggest, could suffer even more from a so-called practical approach. Lived religion, material religion, and religion as a social-cultural phenomenon, these relatively and self-declared new perspectives, although justifiably, according to me, focused on the concrete and the contextual instead of the formal, are ultimately the result of a concept of the natural which is distinct and devoid of revelation or grace and of a relationship with scripture and tradition. And thus, ironically, they form the heritage of modern fundamental theology, a new version of a depoliticized and epistemological apologetic, which is far less the expression of a lived or practical faith than intended and inherently formal, contrary to what it seeks to counter. Now, the study of the foundations of faith, I wish to argue, should instead of choosing a material or empirical approach, rather retrieve its political origins and choose its starting point in the communal faith of the Church, in its critical questioning of the world's sinfulness and in its faith in the resurrection, even or precisely when the world manifests the contradictions of its redeeming power. Now that statement, or desire if you want, would fall into the same foundational fallacy as its modern predecessors if it were not the church itself, herself, having made a radical turn to the world and its social and political aspects. The social practice of the church gives sufficient reason, I would say, for a new apologetic which chooses the political rather than the epistemological as its starting point. The church's turn to the world appeared, uh, happened shortly after the intellectual framework of neo-scholastic fundamental theology became the official philosophy of the church at the First Vatican Council. Only 20 years later, with the publication of the encyclical Rerum Novarum in 1891, the Church made a decisive move towards the design of a theology of social engagement, now 125 years ago this year. It was the first Church document of this order that offered a description and a critique of modern life in the cities and the abominable circumstances in the factories. In his encyclical, Pope Leo XIII, exposed the fact that at the end of the 19th century workers were exploited and human lives treated as capital and he called for better working conditions, a minimum wage and a one day of work every week and moreover he showed himself to be a supporter of trade unions and argued for a specific role and responsibility in society for Catholic organizations. Now the significant consequence of this social approach was that the church strengthened her ties with the working classes and the poor. Rerum Novarum quite explicitly mentions a preference for the poor. I quote, God himself seems to incline rather to those who suffer misfortune 
for Jesus Christ calls the, the poor blessed. He lovingly invites those in labor and grief to come to him for solace, and he displays the most tender charity toward the lowly and the oppressed. End quote. Now, in doing so, the church did not only express a preference for a certain group. She also indicated that the concrete circumstances of the workers and the poor belonged to the responsibility of the church and that her message of salvation concerned the lives of all, a notion that she would make progressively more explicit during the 20th century. Now, like the church in many of the encyclicals that would follow after Rera Novarum and which together would form the body of Catholic social teaching, theology also made a turn, theology made a turn from the epistemological to the social. Notably, the French Jesuit Henri de Lubac played a significant part in redefining fundamental theology by criticizing the view of the real presence in the Eucharist as being a miracle and the misrepresentation of tradition in the magisterium as being authoritarian of structure. De Lubac believed that these views of the Catholic faith after the First Vatican Council, just as the type of Catholicism that had accommodated itself to fascism in the Second World War, were symptomatic of an extrinsicist ontology, which posited grace as something that came from the outside with no intrinsic connection to the world and human nature, emerging from a rigid distinction of the natural and the supernatural. Now, this particular doctrine, de Lubac claims, had eroded the tradition of the early church, which conceived itself as simultaneously sacramental and social. And by retrieving this earlier patristic tradition of thought, de Lubac developed what Hans Boersmaer has called the sacramental ontology, underlying the ecclesiology of the Second Vatican Council, a vision of the church shaped by the Eucharist as a social reality. Marcus, is that some water? Right over here. Now, after the Lubac, Edward Schillebeek's pursued this idea of the church as a social reality and translated it into a theological hermeneutics in which the church became a salvific sign of the world. And in one of his commentaries on Lumen Gentium, Edward Schillebeek's explains that the church's new relationship with the world is based on its retrieval of the concept of grace in nature which has turned world into a theological concept that may refer to a secular autonomous reality with its own autonomous structure and laws, but only to the extent that God's spirit in Christ reveals itself in it and as such is an objective expression of the life of grace. World as the objective expression of the life of grace. So Schillebeek argues that because the incarnation is the revelation of God's love, which has redeemed all of human history, one has to acknowledge, according Edward Schillebeek, that salvation is a reality before people are confronted with the church, even though the church is a visible sign and fulfillment of this reality. 
And that is why, according to Schillebeck, the church's task is not primarily to preach the gospel to the world. Instead, her preaching should be regarded as a result of the sacramental embodiment of Christ's presence in the world. Orthopraxis comes before orthodoxy, or if I want to put that more correctly, Schillebeck would say Christ's orthopraxis comes before our orthodoxy. So the church can be called sacramentum mundi because she discerns the work of Christ as a sacrament in the world which she seeks to embody. That's the order of things according to Schillebeck. So in the end, the theological life, the theological here as in the theological virtues, theologal in Dutch, the theological life of all of humanity is the foundation of the sacramental unity of church and world. And it is only because of this foundation that Schillebeck can write that at the heart of Gaudium et Spes there is the idea of humanity with its transcendental, these are his words, transcendental absolute destiny, though living in an earthly history with its own plans for the future. So Schillebeck's reading of the Council brings him to the conclusion that the autonomy of the world and its people is not in contradiction with the promise of the kingdom, but instead a place in which the faithful can freely become a sign of the living one. So in the church and the theology of the 20th century, the modern world became a common workplace for Christ and the people of God. And this had important consequences for fundamental theology, which now had to answer why and how this particular and concrete history, including its darker moments, could become a time of redemption. In the 2011 document of the International Theological Commission, Theology Today, Perspectives, Principles and Criteria, one can find the start of the answer to these questions. The document mentions dialogue with the world explicitly as one of the six sources of theology. And the other loci are um, the study of scripture, fidelity to the apostolic tradition, attention to the sensus fidelium, responsible adherence to the ecclesiastical magisterium, and the collaboration with other theologians. So the writers of this document stress the importance of knowing not just the loci, but also their relative weight and the relationship between them. Now, ever since Philip Melanchthon and Melchior Cano proposed their lists of theological loci in the 16th century, theologians have had disputes about which theological sources should be on such a list and which not. Now, contrary to Melanchthon, who interpreted Luther's theology by proposing an organization and list of principal theological themes, Cano, the Dominican constructed his list systematically based on the theological authority authority of the sources and decided on seven proper and three additional ones. Now, after Cano, the list of theological loci became shorter rather than longer because the disputes shifted from theological to divine authority and the ongoing polemics on the authority of scripture and the magisterium inhibited that other sources were considered to be authoritative whatsoever. 
So in Catholic fundamental theology, there was a notable exception made, being made for human reason, which was ascribed as separate persuasiveness, thus giving way to this 19th century apologetics of evidences, proofs, and probabilities, either to warrant a natural theology founded on its own logical and epistemological principles, or to protect these principles against a natural theology that claimed to know the things that belong to God, or to safeguard divine revelation against the confusion that would be the inevitable result of human reason, says John Henry Newman. Now, in view of the history of Christian apologetics, one could argue that the debate on reason, revelation, and authority has received a new impulse with that document theology today, because it mentions signs in today's world as one of the six loci. Now, with reference to Gaudium et Spes 11, the authors of theology today acknowledge the theological value of, this is a quote, the events, the needs, and the longings of today's world that may truly be signs of the Spirit's activity. Now, in its relatively short history, fundamental theology has had, as you all might know, the exploration of divine signs in the world as its specific task, which resulted at certain moments in time in the study of miracles, of proofs of the Christian faith. The French philosopher Maurice Blondel famously contended against the extrinsicism of the supernatural argument from miracles and claimed that they should be considered as signs of God's extraordinary goodness in extending his offer of friendship to people. Now, hence, the credibility of faith does not need the support of visible signs as ultimately unintelligible and therefore divine facts, but as the sacramental events of God's grace in the world. So to see with the eyes of faith is not an anomalous or enigmatic faculty of the human mind, but a liturgical event. To believe is to make signs, is to receive God's blessing, is to celebrate. So in theology today, the world is defined as the place in which the church, for the quote, the place in which the church, following in the footsteps of Christ, announces the gospel, bears witness to the justice and mercy of God, and participates in the drama of human life. End of quote. And one can easily see that the other loci, scripture, the apostolic tradition, that they get mentioned in this definition to reaffirm their interconnectedness. Noticeable, however, is the prominent place of the church in this definition of, of the world. The church is in the world where it witnesses, prays, reflects, acts, and participates in human history, and thus discovers and reconfirms the world as locus theologicus. Now, this might not have changed the task of fundamental theology compared to its early stages as a response to the Enlightenment. Its working ground and perspective certainly have. Fundamental theology used to be an epistemology of the natural, in which the natural is either defined or limited by the conditions of possibility of human reason. And because the world, for example, according to Kant, exists as an end in itself, it should be distinguished from divine revelation to be intelligible. Now, following the description of theology today, the description of world, 
in theology today. Fundamental theology has become, instead of the epistemology of the natural, an epistemology of the secular, in which the secular is not a neutral concept, but defined by the presence or experienced absence of a self-giving God. So this is not the social or phenomenological secular as the opposite of what some people call the religious, but the secular in which the church dwells, its people sin, and in which God forgives. That world, God's world. So consequently, the intelligibility of this world, God's world, should not be limited to a formal concept of the natural, nor should knowledge of God's revelation in the world depend on an epiphany or construction of meaning to the transcendental subject. Now this does not need to be the end of natural theology. Natural theology should and could include the incarnation as an act of God's self-giving love. Indeed, contrary to transcendental and phenomenological concepts of the world, a theological concept is marked by the incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ and should be rationally accounted for accordingly. So in this version of natural theology, the world is not characterized by a transcendental limit safeguarding the otherness of revelation, but by the incarnation, which is itself an apophatic sign of otherness, of contradiction and hiddenness, a mystical body. And this mystical body is the, re the reality of the world. It informs its metaphysics and should therefore form, according to me, the foundation of fundamental theology, as it is the, um, or I must say, uh, the starting point, not the foundation, but the starting point for fundamental uh, theology, as it is the precondition of the intelligibility of faith. Now, while the Church uncovered the world as a locus theologicus during the 20th century, the study of the political became a prominent new field in modern theology. Not everyone, however, agrees on what has motivated that synchronism. There are sufficient reasons to presume that a growing political awareness is a response to the separation of church and state, or to the marginalization of Christianity in a secular age. Yet, political theology seems to have become, that's the way I read it, the new apologetics, as it once was in the early church. As such, it has not always been able to avoid the dangers of modern apologetics, in which faith becomes prone to religious fundamentalism or secularism. In any way, although sometimes accompanied with the resentment of a reactionary mentality, which is present in both conservative and liberal fractions, the Church has undeniably made a shift towards the political in the past century. And to me, uh, this is fairly obvious. To illustrate this, I could mention the following quite diverse set of examples, encyclicals, like the already mentioned Vera Novarum on capital and labor, Quadragesimo Anno on the social order, Pacem in Paris, on peace and justice, Populorum Progressio, on the development of peoples, Laudato Si, on care for our common home, 
Yet another example of the church's political turn is the social work of rapidly growing lay movements such as Focolare, Comunione Liberazione, or Sant'Egidio. And perhaps the clearest example in theology uh, of this church's political turn is the rise of liberation theology, black theology, public theology, or feminist theology. All these different examples, I think, are signs and manifestations of practices and reflections of a faith that shows an increasing political awareness, either or not, intentionally. And I think this is a fundamental uh, development in the church, and I think and hope that it will not go away anymore. Now, apart from the emergence of new theological themes and approaches, this political turn has had an impact on the nature and content of Catholic theology as a whole, and even for that simple reason, it is important for fundamental theologians to pay attention to it. Um, since the, the, the Second Vatican Council, the theological landscape has changed drastically. Biblical exegesis has gained a more prominent place in the theological curriculum. The fields of moral and pastoral theology have expanded and grown in importance. Political perspectives in both biblical and historical research have had substantial corrective consequences for the development of doctrine. Ecumenical interreligious dialogue has changed the often aggressive and polemical attitude of the old apologetics into an openness for, as for example expressed even in Dominus Jesus, the universal economy of the word that is valid also outside the church. Now, not all theologians might have heard faith's political calling in the modern world. The field of theology as a whole, I think, has certainly uttered a response to it. And systematic theologians, like myself, have profited from these developments. But at the same time, they increasingly struggled with the hermeneutical problem of the universality of dogma and the particularity of the present, the political present. How can the truth be found in new forms that bear the mark of the current uh, cultural political situation in which they emerge? And this question has been treated differently in recent decades. What has been addressed as a hermeneutical problem of understanding in the 1960s and the 1970s, or as the hermeneutics of difference, either historical, cultural, or religious, in the 1980s and 1990s, has turned out to be, uh, according to my reading of these developments, to be a problem of revelation. And this shift from the hermeneutical via the postmodern towards the theological is best illustrated, I think, maybe not surprisingly so, by the development of Schillebeck's theological hermeneutics, who notably expressed having made a conscious radical shift from metaphysics to history for political reasons. In his words, to do justice to the human world and society. And that shift, he said, was also a clear break with the Thomist worldview of the participation of the totality of meaning in every particular experience embedded as it was in a monocultural society. This is a statement from 1974. Therefore, he thought, a pluralist society should be supported by a theology of anticipation, one that accommodates, as he said, 
Jürgen Habermas' ideal democratic society with its non-coercive communication, allowing critical reason to do its work based on historical and particular human experiences rather than on a single perennial metaphysics. That's what he said in 1974. But in his valedictory lecture in 1982, Schillerbeck's asked the question of how our concrete situation can be the re revelation of the universal message of the gospel quite differently. He writes, only in concrete particularity can the gospel be the revelation of the universality of salvation coming from God, end of quote. So the hermeneutical question had become a universal answer about revelation, even though it stressed the particular. And this had fundamental theological consequences. As he, write, as he writes, theological reason can therefore not be the so-called unbiased theoretical reason of the Enlightenment, or Kantian purely practical reason, or Hegel's personified reason. All it entails is theoretical reason which, prompted by the memories of the stories of human suffering, becomes practical in the sense of liberating. 1982. So what started as a problem of the understanding of truth in history turned into the question how revelation could be seen as a response to and a liberation from suffering in the here and now, a question which calls for a political theology. Now, as some of you might know, political theology became a central theme and approach in the theology of the 1970s. Schillerbeck borrowed his notion of anamnesis from the political theology of Johann Baptist Metz, who developed his so-called new political theology to counter Carl Schmitt's from the 1920s. And Schmitt famously identified modern concepts of the state as secularized theological concepts and warned against it. Now, to protect the modern state from legitimizing itself with an imminent concept of God, Schmitt proposed a vision of a sovereign state which would embody both the will of the people and the will of God as the performance of a sovereignty that would be prior to the law and prior to democracy, Schmidt. But conversely, in response to Schmidt, Metz wished to maintain an equilibrium between church and the state in which the church would act as an institution of social and political criticism amidst a secular an autonomous world that, according to him, to Metz, was the decisive point of Christ's dominion in history. And building on this image of the church as a body of so for social criticism, Gustavo Gutierrez suggested that the church, seeing the poor as a sign of the times, could initiate and pursue processes of transformation or of social structures. Now all these particular positions in political theology in the 1970s, they became heavily contested, also by the church. Uh, the anticipated consequence of the thought of Metz and Gutierrez, in which the church would become merely, according to the church itself at the time, Ratzinger, a political organization among others, with a specific political program over against others, strengthens the common objection against uh, these types of political theology, that this would make the church partisan or sectarian. And Schmidt's position triggered a similar criticism, as Kavanaugh has pointed out, 
because it would turn the nation-state into a Catholic, all-embracing body with equal sectarian consequences for the Church. So, exit political theology. At least that's what it looked like. I think we've got about... Uh, well, we're at half past, so uh, we're eating into question time, but... All right, I'll do my best. So exit political theology, that's what it looked like for a short while. But in the past decade, however, there seems to be a resurgence of political theologies, which not only critically stir the margins of theology, but rather have started to dominate the field, uh, at least of systematic theology. And this, um, I think, has not arrived yet in the field of fundamental theology, and I think it should and uh, you know the examples, William Kavanaugh's uh, Politics of the Eucharist, Charles Matthews' a Theology of Public Life, Elizabeth Johnson's Theology of Creation, Vincent Lloyd's Theology of Race, Elizabeth Johnson's Theology of Creation, uh, um, Walter Casper's Theology of Mercy, uh, to name but a few current and significant examples. Now, in a recent collection of lectures, Francis Schuessler-Fiorenza notes that despite the reduction of the church to the private sphere within a market economy, the public exercise and political influence of the church could take on a new role in the public sphere. And in a Metzian fashion, I think, he asks how new political philosophies have taken the Holocaust as an appearance of modernity and as such as a new starting point for uh, theology. So perhaps Francis Schuster Fiorenza is the one who tried to connect political theology with fundamental theology. And this has called for, according to him, an anthropology that is aware of sin, not to use it, as Schmidt has done, as an argument for an authoritarian government, but as an impetus for social and political practice, same point as Gutierrez was making. So, the Pauline, Pauline vision of universal politics, the Augustinian view of the church as an actual polity, the Thomist understanding of Aristotelian political virtues, all these different positions have now returned to the heart of the current theopolitical debate. And one would have thought that the tension between church and state got settled in modernity, but instead, in this world on the move, we experience the limits of that precious balance. Rowan Williams once heavily on the fire, as you know, for making space for religious laws within secular law, recently wrote, in many settings, the rule of law is a sorry fiction with an administrative elite exploiting public process to advance private interest. And even in less corrupt environments, the law loses credibility when the social order manifestly fails to protect the poorest. So following up on this critique, Political theology today is challenged by very new questions, I think. Should the church criticize this social order as any other political party or pressure group does? Should it voice a moral authority that stands above all parties? Or should it bring its theology of sin and forgiveness into practice and become a sign of the law that has been ruling the world in Christ's resurrected body. In order to explore these questions further, I will try to 
I propose to look at the critical power of the church sacramental practice. In the document Theology Today, the church was imagined, as I've shown, as a witness of God's world and the drama of human history in it. And this calls on believers to be a sign of what makes them recognize that drama and to reflect on how it affects them, a hearing of the command of grace that calls to become a sign. And the failure of modern fundamental theology lay in the fact that it sought to demonstrate that certain signs in our knowledge of the natural world could be regarded as expressions of a sacramental principle, a divine presence in all things. In sacramental practice, however, the world does not get reaffirmed as a place of divine presence or divine presence evoked by an act of remembrance. The sacrament makes manifest that it is not merely the natural that forms the foundation of theology, but the salvific in the secular, God's becoming in the world of which we become sign and instrument. I conclude. Rowan Williams has argued that um, in the Eucharist, the sacramental community makes manifest that the world is a place of loss and need and not necessarily the place where we want to be, let alone have chosen to be. He writes that the sacramental community is not a community of choices and rights, so not in that sense political, does not form a court where I can claim what is mine, for example. To him, it is rather a community of fundamental interdependency, which all share, and which, in which human desire is a desire for the same good in all, a freedom that seeks to create a space in which others have, to, have the freedom to return that space. So the political consequence of that practice is that the sacrament could be at the heart of a citizenship that does not enslave others, a sociality of a quite different order than that of negotiation and manipulation. So the sacrament could be regarded as the politics of sign-making in which not the gift whether as the act of supply and demand or as the act of pure disinterested generosity, but the ongoing given becomes an economy, a common humanity. That might sound very Skilovexian, the vulnerability and the poverty of our reality. And this common humanity is not an ontotheological precondition, I think, as some have suggested, but a condition of profound uncertainty and neglect acknowledged in the penitential beginning of the Eucharist, we are not worthy. So in the Eucharist, a community of hospitality is given in which vulnerability and mutual dependency are recognized and in which the hungry and the poor, the criminal and the unworthy, can trust that the common resources of a society will work for their good, a sign and instrument of the enabling of others to become givers to the power, power that gives. <clears throat> and it is that particular universal power that has become the new starting point of fundamental theology. And I had this wonderful quote of Pope Francis, but I think I should stop here. Thank you.